Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Slaughter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on Music Live Radio, producer Josh Allman talks with Travis Larson of the instrumental fusion rock group Travis Larson Band. But first, let's listen to the second cut off of their latest album, Sound Mind, entitled Rise and Fall. I spoke with Travis of the Travis Larson Band, who has worked with such notable musicians as Steve Lukather, Victor Wooten, Dave LaRue, and has shared live billings with Ted Nugent, Steve Morse, Bill Bruford, and Ronnie Montrose. The band, which has six recordings and two full-length live performance DVDs, consists of Travis Larson on guitar, Jennifer Young on bass, and Dale Moon on drums. I shared some of your music with a friend of mine yesterday. She immediately said, oh, it's a cross between Led Zeppelin and Satriani. Wow, that's that's a kind of cool combination because there's a song we do called Dirty Magic where I actually have a little spiel about, um, with this particular song, if Led Zeppelin and Rush were to procreate, this is what it would sound like. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So... That's uh, th- that's a close approximation, you know. There's uh, definitely, you know, I think Satriani is in a little bit of everybody my age that plays, you know, guitar. So, where did you grow up, and when did you first get into music? Well, I was actually born down in uh, Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley area. Um, well, actually, born in Burbank, and then lived in the San Fernando Valley only until I was about four or five years old, and then my parents moved to the Central Coast of California. And um, I've kind of lived there ever since. So uh, San Luis Obispo area, which is like halfway between L.A. and San Francisco. Actually, it was funny. It was on uh, Oprah Winfrey on her last season as happiest place on earth to live or something like that, which, you know, of course, we were watching the TV say, don't tell anybody. But but, um, it was not a music Mecca. You know, it's funny that I end up actually doing music for a living after growing up here, but. I uh, I travel so much that I never wanted to move out of an area that I love to do what I'm doing because it, you know you you of course can you can play music anywhere it's just a matter of uh, to make a living you tend to have to travel to do it 
unless you want to live in you know a, a metropolitan area and and do it that way but i always opted for live in a place that you'd like to vacation and travel to the places that you wouldn't so uh, i've stayed here ever since i started playing uh, guitar when i was maybe early teens i, I felt like i was a late bloomer um, but I, I took piano lessons for a few years before that and then uh, late late in high school i met up with jennifer young who's you know to this day the bass player in the travis larson band and uh, we started playing you know some rush covers i think the first thing we ever tried to work up was xanadu and that was you know when we'd been playing our instruments for about a year so i'm sure that was a a, a lovely rendition you know <laughs> <laughs> but uh we started playing together and then um you know kind of off and on played with different musicians uh, i i had a band that was kind of a cover band in the early 90s um playing all kinds of stuff like you know, the, the basic Cheap Trick, Rolling Stones, all the stuff you'd play to just get gigs. And I'd start working instrumentals kind of into that just because I always loved and grew up with bands like UFO, or not UFO, but uh, we went and toured with UFO uh, a year and a half ago. That's why that's in my head. But, but like ELP and, uh, you know, the progressive bands of the early 80s, late 70s was the stuff that kind of influenced me. Um, and I started out, like I say, taking piano lessons. So Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea and people like that were early influences. And then when I started playing guitar, uh, then it was kind of an obvious uh, transition into guys like Jeff Beck and things like that, and later on Steve Morris. And so playing cover songs, you know, just out of high school to try and get gigs. And then uh, I had different drummers and bass players and then jennifer and i started playing again and started getting really serious about kind of doing our own music and this instrumental thing you know we went through drummers like spinal tap for a while and eventually uh you know a few years into it got dale moon who's our drummer this day and that was probably 96 97 something like that um started playing with dale and Dale had just come out of a, a reggae hip-hop band, oddly enough, but always loved progressive music and uh, Steve Vai and, and things like that. And so this was his first opportunity to really do that kind of thing as opposed to just make a living 30 nights a month playing, you know, kind of straight hip-hop beats and, and stuff that would get people up and dancing but wasn't all that challenging. It was more grueling on a on a level of endurance you know so when he joined this band i think he got to open up musically and uh we put our first record out in 1998 after building a studio in san luis obispo that to this day um still still resides there and uh our engineer kip stork has recorded tons of bands there um john anderson from yes uses it sometimes when he needs a place he lives in san luis obispo part-time and uh He's done some Flectone stuff there, and then we do all our records there uh, since then. So um, that's kind of, I guess, the, the rough overview of how the whole thing came, came together. But, uh, you know, basically, uh, Jennifer Young and I went to high school together, and we've been pretty much playing together off and on ever since. And we've had this band since 1998, 98 on a serious level, I guess, because that's when our first record came out. And uh, we've been with Dale Moon consistently since then as well. Okay, so you guys have been a trio for that whole time. We have, yeah. 
and uh, not really done anything else except maybe sitting in with some people here and there and some guest spots and um, you know Dale will do some fill-ins with some other bands but this is the main project for all three of us uh, was it was there ever consideration of, of adding a singer or has it always been we want to be an instrumental group it's always been we want to be an instrumental group uh, but you know, that doesn't mean I would rule out the idea of ever doing a vocal project if it was the right project with the right vocals. But this particular incarnation of this band has always been what it is, which is, uh, you know, we're very Dixie Dregs influenced, uh, Jeff Beck influenced, and just wanted to try and keep that alive because uh, although, you know, as, as you probably know, being a a pretty consummate music listener. The American music uh, business is not really keeping that kind of thing alive anymore. So, you know, the, there's there's a difference uh, kind of overseas in some certain areas, but um, we didn't want to see this sort of thing die. We grew up with musicians that could really play their instruments and went out and put on great shows. And uh, it was about being able to really play and put music out there and not necessarily uh, just dance to a backing track or whatever goes on on some of this <laughs> stuff we see today. So, What is your take on the, the music industry and how are your feelings also about the BitTorrent stuff? You know, p- people just downloading things for free and not giving, not giving any credit back or money back to the artist. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting discussion and, and or dilemma because... I think that there's definitely some value to the bootleg scene. You know, like I said, I, I was around in the, the, the 70s, 80s. I certainly, as a fan, can appreciate having, you know, a rare bootleg of a band that you love and passing that around to your friends and all that kind of stuff. But as far as the business of it goes, since, you know, basically there aren't the big monster record companies out there. Well, th- there are, but it's different now where they would take a band and, kind of nurture them and grow with them uh, and you'd end up with something like Rush, you know, where the guys have basically grown a career over 40 years. It's one of those things where I think getting the music out there, it can be very beneficial, but people need to understand that on the level that musicians are trying to survive now, if they just take all their art and give it away for free, they're they're not supporting the artist in any way, shape, or form to allow them to keep putting that stuff out that you love to listen to. So so if you really love musicians and, and artists, you got to support them on some level, or else they can't really do what they're trying to do. I, I got lots of friends that are well-known musicians, and the perception of a well-known musician is usually different than the financial truth. So. <laughs> If that makes sense. Yeah, I've t- I actually interviewed um, Dave Maros from Spock's Beard last week. And oh, great. I, I know he's mentioned that before, and, and maybe I don't think he, we really talked about it in, when I talked to him, but he's mentioned it before in other interviews about like the profit they would make is being eaten up by all the people who just download it for free. Sure. They kind of recoup their, their you know recording costs and... Then beyond that, uh, the amount of people who are probably who who might be getting it for free, it could be the profit, you know. Right, right. Well, and you know, there's uh, like I said, there's a lot to be said for free promotion now, and that's great. And um, although you know, I I do see uh, even with the YouTube stuff and things like that, um, there's a little bit of 
apprehension about a guy shooting bits of a show with a crappy camera that doesn't have good audio that you know makes makes you look less than the show really was if you were there for the experience but i do understand that if people shoot some stuff and they take good care with it and they put out something that maybe looks pretty cool and they people get a sense of what the show is that's free promotion and that's great and like i said you know even even maybe sticking out a song, you know, I, I've had some of my songs posted on YouTube by other people where they still say, you know, go buy the whole album if you like what you hear. Check this band out. And, that's, right. and that stuff's even cool. But, um, you know, just passing around the whole record for free, you know, but generally I think a lot of people that do that aren't really supporting artists anyway. And I'm not sure that, you know you would sell records to a lot of those people that I say records there that tells you my age. Right. But, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that a lot of those people would buy it anyway. You know, if, if they're just so overwhelmed with all this free music that they're just checking out on a whim. So, you know, who knows? I, it certainly has taken some money out of the artist's pocket, but, uh, you know, I think there's some positive aspects to the new age of, downloads and music too I, I i don't really have an overall black or white answer but um but i think it's important as a fan to support your artists or else they can't keep giving giving you what you're looking for i guess that would be my answer here's the travis larson band with forest for the trees you have your own recording studio i assume that makes things a lot easier when you're working on your music oh absolutely um yeah we we built a a, a studio in san luis obispo called avalon digital recording studio with like i say our engineer kip stork um 
It's really just our home and his place to run and make a living off of. And then um, when we do a record, he tends to just take a vacation and we go in and kind of take over. And then we have uh, part of the studio is blocked off for our permanent re rehearsal resident. It makes it really easy because if you don't have a 24-7 access area to make noise as a musician, you know, that can really inhibit what you want to be able to do. Especially, you know, Dale Moon, our drummer, spends most of his time there because now the technology has moved on to where as a guitar player or a bass player or a keyboard player or whatever, you, you can do a lot at home with digital recording and headphones and all that stuff. But as a drummer, you're still kind of stuck with 120 decibels in a room and bashing these giant cans, you know? <laughs> it is what it is. So, so yeah, if you're an up-and-coming band or you're trying to put a project together, having a place to play is imperative. You know, if you don't have a place to play, then you don't really have a project yet until you can really hone your, your craft as a band and be able to go in and knock around and make noise. So... Yeah, it's made a huge difference for us. That's that's kind of why we bit the bullet and just went to work on that back then and made sure that we had a place that we could do this for as long as, you know, we could keep that residence anyway. And what is your writing process like? Uh, well, it, it's, uh, it's changed over the years. Um, again, based on technology, which it's interesting because when you're in a band for a long time, you either figure out, kind of the lowest impact way to deal with each other and work for years and years and years, or you don't and it falls apart. And so when we started out, you know, uh, and I've heard Rush say this a lot and other bands that have been around a while, you know, we would get in a room and we would hash stuff out from the ground up. And uh, honestly, you know, that there's certainly something to be said for that process, but with technology now, being able to each individually kind of hone your parts and demo stuff and pass files around and say, yeah, that's cool, or, you know, let's try this for that part and, and cut and paste and all that stuff, and then go learn the song as human beings, that's a great way to write. And we've kind of moved into that area over the years where we'll all three demo up our ideas for songs and records uh, and pass around like this blueprint and then uh, eventually arrive at something. But um, to get in a room and hash stuff out from the ground up as songs can be pretty trying because, you know, one person's trying to learn the part you just showed them. You have to be patient and sit there and wait for them. And then you try it, and then everybody decides it sucks, and let's move on to the other idea anyway. And it's really, you know, <laughs> it's really time-intensive. So, so as a band over the years, we've gotten to the point where we've got this system kind of down where, We'll demo stuff up. I generally come up with the, the blueprint for ideas, you know, a rough, maybe I'll even mock up, you know, some drum parts, very crude drum parts where you just know where the one is because sometimes with our writing, it's hard to tell that if you don't have a kick drum in the right spot. <laughs> and then I'll take that to, uh, you know, J Jennifer and I will hash out, you know, kind of some where, uh, where the bass is going to go in all this and, um, and then we'll go to Dale, and Dale will kind of make the drums come to life and give some, you know, breathe some life into them so it's not just a machine. And that's kind of how it goes now. You know, it's uh, a little different than it used to be, but it's also um, allows us to make much more, I guess, thoughtful decisions about how, what we want to play exactly in different sections of songs and 
make it a little more intricate and interesting. And, you know, we've been able to do some, some weird time signature stuff, like multiple time signatures in a section. The things that back in the day to work that up as a band, you know, you couldn't have wrapped your brain around with the amount of patience that you have to deal with each other. So it's, uh, technology has really helped a lot with being able to be better musicians and a better band and have more accessibility to practice and all that stuff. So that's how it's changed, I guess. Do you write all new material when you're working on a new album or you pull from, say, other parts that you have had in the past? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, we don't tend to be a band that saves stuff for a long time. Uh, you know, there, there's always the old joke, your first record you've been writing your whole life and the rest of your records you have maybe six months to write, you know? So, <laughs> um, and that's really true. Since, you know, our first first album or maybe second album where we had some stuff that had been kind of sitting around on the back burner, uh, I'm, I'm a guy that really sa says I'm going to sit down and write and get into that zone and mindset and just stick with it. Um, it's hard for me to walk away from and go play gigs and then come back to because I kind of lose my spot and I have to relearn what it was that I was doing in the first place, you know? So if I, if I come up with a cool idea and then I go away from it and then come back to it, it's like almost starting from scratch and learning a cover song with the cool idea. And I, I like to be in the moment on all that stuff and stay in the game, so to speak. So uh, we tend to go out and tour on a record maybe, you know, a, a year and a half, two years, and then just put aside the time to really get in there and work on nothing but that and not go out and do any gigs or any other things. Um, and that's generally how we do it. So I, I tend to sit down. I'll spend a month or two just working on ideas and throwing them out to the band, and they bounce back ideas to me of... Uh, how they would approach what I'm giving them, and um, that's kind of how it goes. Do you write solely on guitar, or do you bring in uh, piano as well? Uh, I bring in piano. Um, I've done it both ways. Sometimes I apply piano stuff to guitar. Sometimes I apply guitar to piano. And, uh, you know, um, there's really only one piano solo that I've ever put on a record where... Uh, I think it was a song called Other Place on our Rate of Change album, which was kind of a fusion-y thing. And I thought, you know, I've never played a piano solo, and I used to be into all this, you know, Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea stuff, so I should try and do something like that. But generally speaking, you know, all, all the keys and, and things like that on our records are really there to just enhance the trio. And we've, you know, not to keep throwing Rush out there is too much of an influence, but it's, you know... They're a big, obvious influence, and um, I always want the band to sound like a trio, but I like to fill up the sound and make it sound really huge sometimes and add those textures. Anyone that's seen the band live, um, and you can see this on our Ready to Change Live DVD, we use a lot of uh, samples and MIDI pickups on the guitars and triggers, and everybody in the band kind of fills those spots based on you know the albums where i'll overdub as many keyboard parts as i want to do and then we'll figure out how to do it live later so dale's got all these pads back by his drum set where he'll hit a pad and it'll have a sequence of uh basically a, a keyboard moment off the record for maybe a verse or a chorus and it's and people have asked us too you were asking about adding a vocalist they've asked us why we don't add a keyboard player and the dynamic of a trio has really appealed to me my whole life i i really love just 
the balanced look of the stage, um, the politics of it, the the coolness of seeing you know three people fill up that much sound on a stage, and um, you know I've been really really into uh, you know, Brian Beller's a friend of mine. I've been really stoked on the Aristocrats lately because I think it's so great that there's another power trio out there emerging and playing some interesting music because it's a dying breed. <laughs> and what, what's fun about it, musically speaking, is that everybody gets to stretch. You know, you, you get to fill in the holes and everybody gets to play a little more. And, you know, oddly enough, I grew up loving bands like the Stones. Um, you know, I, I, I loved a bunch of progressive stuff, but I also love soul, soulful stuff. And um, I appreciate the simplicity of a band like that or uh you know even going back to a band like the eagles where it's all about just restraint and professionalism and those guys nailing what they're supposed to do every night but the parts aren't really that difficult right musically speaking but the fact that they have that professionalism to not overdo it is really cool too but for me just you know personally playing my instrument it was so much more fun to do a trio and uh, everybody figure out, you know, how are we going to make this sound interesting? You know, you've got basically, you know, the rhythm section and mel melody, whether that's bass and drums or guitar and drums, if the bass player is doing something. But uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to try and fill in the gaps and keep playing and stretch. And, um, and then the dynamic, too, like we were saying, is, is just uh, a lot easier to deal with. You know, three people in the van are easier than six people in the van, right? your DVD and I noticed that you were playing piano on the guitar. How do you do that? Right, right. 
Well, uh, there's a few different things we do, but one is, um, and, I, and I play all Ernie Ball music bands, by the way, I'd like to mention that, but they, uh, I've got one that I have a, a MIDI converter on. It's just a, basically a, a piezo pickup that transfers to a MIDI signal so I can trigger keyboard sounds from my guitar. Um, and mine's, you know, 100 years old. It's the same one that Steve Morris used to use. That's kind of how I got turned on to it. Uh, you know, it works well for what I do. I always use it in conjunction with the guitar. So it's always a combination of guitar and whatever I'm doubling it with. And then the other way we do it, like I say, is, uh, you know, Dale, our drummer, has some sample triggers where he'll trigger sequences of keyboard parts or uh, Jennifer does the same thing. Um, I do the same thing. So there's all kinds of ways we do that, but um, if you actually see me playing notes on the guitar that sound like a piano or something, then that's the guitar synth. You know, I, I try not to overdo it. I try and do it in support, like I say, of, uh, of the guitar itself. I was never into, um, you know, playing like saxophone solos on the guitar and that kind of thing. Like I've seen, I've seen Pat Metheny do some really cool stuff, but that just wasn't, wasn't what I was hearing in my head. But uh, but it's uh, yeah, it's a, a cool way to do it, and technology is uh, a lot of fun sometimes. It's allowed us to really sound fuller than the the three people that we are, because you know, depending on how you do it, that can sound uh, really thin and empty too. But you know, if that's what you're trying to do as a dynamic, that's great. But uh, but I always like being able to sound like an orchestra if we want to, and sound like you know three people playing in a jazz pub if we want to and have that ability to span those dynamics well, what is your rig like and do you use anything else that's unusual uh well there's a whole bunch of ernie ball volume pedals one of the things i stole from uh steve morris years ago is how he runs his effects so i control my uh, ambient effects with a volume pedal my, my delays and reverbs and things like that instead of switching them on and off from different sections of the song uh, i can fade them in and out and actually put uh as much in the mix as i want to kind of like a sound man would turn up a, an effect send on a mixing board and i always thought that was a great way to go so you know if you see me with a bunch of volume pedals on the floor that's usually why because it's just more flexibility for uh going from sections in in the Within a song, if we record an album, you know, you generally do a rhythm track, and then you'll overdub a lead track that has a different different amount of delay on it, maybe, and a different amp. And instead of just clicking around, uh, I always thought it was cool to to kind of fade between those sounds a little more smoothly. So that's a lot of uh, a lot of extra stuff, uh, a lot of extra wires in the snake from the pedal board. I uh, I actually run two rigs at once incorporating the piezo and the, the synthesizer stuff from the guitar. So I have my electric rig. Um, this is getting pretty geeky, but hopefully some guys out there are musicians. Um, I run a DV Mark amp rig, which is for the electric guitar sounds. And then I run an electric voice, basically like a mini PA system or monitor system on top of that that has my synthesizer and my piezo sounds. And those are like full range PA cabs on top of you know 412 electric guitar cabs and so i can get a lot of sound out of that huge rig it's you know between the acoustic uh piezo pickup and is it piezo or piezo you're a bass player do you know this you know i've been wondering about that for years i think i've always said piezo but 
I've heard people say piezo too. Yeah, it's uh, you know, who knows, but but it's kind of like three rigs at once. So I've got electric guitar, I've got acoustic guitar, and I've got you know the synthesizer stuff, and I can overlay all three sounds, getting a really huge sound, and uh, being able to move through a lot of different sounds too. So it's a pretty complex rig. There's a a version of it um, on the DVD, like you were saying, where I do a tour on the special features of that. And I'm I'm going to do one here pretty soon, I think, for YouTube or the website or something, because the the rig has changed a little bit over the years. But uh, it's it's pretty complex, and sometimes when we're playing smaller places, I, I slim it down quite a bit. And uh, like the the rig you probably saw when we were doing the Keneally gigs was pretty small. But um, I always still run my effects with volume pedals so that I can bring them in and out. I thought, thought that was a great way to do it. About how many dates are you guys out on the road every year? Oh, uh, you know, it varies depending on... Um, if we're working on new material or not, but let's say a year right after you've put out an album. Yeah. I, you know, I'd like to do, uh, you know, say between a hundred and 150, you know, something like that. Um, you know, this year is actually turning out to be a really good year. We're, uh, we're doing, like I say, uh, the West coast and the East coast coming up here in April and May. And then we're going to do, uh, I think the Midwest, um, we're working on when that's going to be, but probably around August. And then we're going to do the Southwest. Um, we're going out uh, actually at, in September. Uh, when, I think Dave Martin's going to come out with us. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Um, he's a Canadian guitarist who did, uh, he went out with Joe Satriani last year on his tour. Um, but just uh, one of those guys, you know, dare I say he's, he's like a Guthrie, but, uh, just amazing guitar player and uh, I'm just uh, happy to be able to play with guys like that and uh, learn whatever I can from them you know <laughs> I was gonna say but but yeah that's kind of our plan for this year is uh, you know we're gonna try and get as much of the states as we can and then um, uh, there's loose talk I don't want to you know say too much but we're trying to get over to Europe at some point maybe towards the end of the year as well we haven't done that yet so I've been uh, working hard to try and make sure we that happens sometime soon do you have any interesting stories from the road there's always interesting stories from the road um i'll give you uh your common lowly road band story and then maybe a rock star story but uh we we were uh on a south or a northwest tour a couple of years ago and we were uh, about an hour before a radio show and uh maybe 30 minutes away from it coming down the i-5 heading to portland and we blew a tire doing like uh, let's just say it was above the speed limit um, and so uh we pulled off didn't have a spare tire in the van because the van's always so full of gear you can't fit a spare tire and got a tow truck we had the van on a flatbed truck got to uh, a tire store changed out the tire got to our radio show with like 30 seconds to spare and, uh, you know, of course, you're dripping sweat and shaking and stressed out. And then you go on the air like you and I are right now and act like everything's great. So that's, you know, kind of like a, a regular day in, in the life of the road dog. Um, but uh, as far as my, you know, one of my big rock star stories going back um, a few years, back when, uh, and the band always tells me, don't tell this story anymore. Everybody's heard it. But hopefully we're getting some new listeners today. You guys haven't heard it. 
um, we did a gig where uh, originally um, Leonard Skinner was going out with Ted Nugent, and Leonard Skinner's bass player passed away a day before the tour started. So it was just a case of right place, right time, knowing the right management people and all this stuff, and we ended up playing in Leonard Skinner's spot in front of 15,000 people with Ted Nugent. The moral of the story is whenever we play a dive bar where people don't know us and somebody yells Freebird, that's the story I tell because you can't scare us after 15,000 people that really wanted to hear Freebird that night. Can you play Freebird? <laughs> Funny, what we did was uh, knowing what we were going into, we kind of ripped the old Dixie Dregs medley where they go through all these songs and and we just did the Freebird part at the end of one of our songs for the encore, and everybody went nuts. So it was actually ended up really cool because, you know, everybody was expecting that they weren't going to hear anything. And then we did that in the end, and, and everybody was on their feet. So it was kind of a cool moment because you were able to win them over and, uh, and pull off the gig. But it was a weird gig because that was also my first uh, kind of introduction into... You know, 15,000 people is different than 150 people in a club because you can't interact with people that are talking to you from, you know, the front or second row and then expect people in the back row to understand what you're talking about. You start realizing you're talking to yourself and they think you're crazy. So, <laughs> right. Wow. So, yeah. So that was a pretty interesting experience. And, you know, there's been lots of stuff like that since, you know, um, not specific stories, but just being able to play with people that I grew up listening to, uh, you know, um, getting to, to do gigs with guys like Steve Morris and, you know, the Dregs and, you know, even like doing that UFO tour, uh, anything like that is always, you know, you kind of pinch yourself and think, you know, on a level of, I remember when I was a kid, you know, in my room in high school and I had this guy's poster on my wall and, you know, it's interesting, this this uh, tour that we've got coming up here on the West Coast was based around, uh, originally, some stuff that we were going to do with Montrose, and so um, it's a bummer that we just lost him. I mean, that's that's an understatement, but uh, but that was another example where, you know, I, I, I did a show with him maybe a year and a half ago, and that guy, you know his music's everywhere and he's kind of the reason Sammy Hagar is well known. And, you know, he's the guy that kind of invented the heavy riff back then. So, so stuff like that is, is a trip, you know, to be able to, to meet people like that and play with them and all that stuff is always, always exciting and interesting. Are you endorsed by Ernie Ball Music Man? Yeah. Uh, Ernie Ball Music Man, uh, DV Mark now are the amps I'm using, which is Mark Bass actually, uh, which is Jen's company. Uh, She's been using Mark-based amplifiers for a couple of years now, and they started making guitar stuff. I think they're just starting to get that stuff out in the, the States and the guitar centers. But them and then uh, I've been using Lexicon and Digitech stuff for years and years and years, you know, since back in the days when Alex Lifeson was using, I think, the 2101 or something like that. Yeah, those are kind of my three main ones, except for Electrovoice, which... Uh, we tour with as a band um electrovoice makes pa systems uh wireless systems and you know sound reinforcement so they get incorporated in all kinds of different ways that you know the general public doesn't really think of but yeah we're, we've got a great relationship with ernie ball music man um they are actually in san luis obispo uh the music man factory is so that's really really great for us it's right here 
you know, I'm able to be really involved with them. We've been involved with this uh, new guitar that they're putting out called the Game Changer. <clears throat> if there's any musicians out there that play guitar or bass, check this thing out because you can rewire your guitar at the drop of a hat. They've basically wired all the guitar into a circuit board so that it's a regular analog guitar, but instead of having to re-solder pickup wiring, you can actually just reprogram it. And that's really crazy because you can get, you know, half a million different combinations out of this thing that are like things that you would never do without just custom wiring a guitar. So it's going to be great for making albums with because I can just sit here and play with tones all day long. I love working with small companies too that, that really still care about what they're doing, you know, and have a, a work ethic and, you know, sometimes some of those companies, they get away from themselves and the, uh, the manufacturing is all done in some otherworldly place where the labor's cheap and the attention to detail isn't there. So we've always had a, uh, a lot of weight on who we deal with as far as that kind of stuff goes. And I've never been one of those guys that just tries to get every endorsement you can just, just to get an endorsement. You know, there's really no point unless it's gear you really like and they're, you know, helping you out and supporting you with stuff that you really want to use. Yeah, I've, I've been impressed with the, I've had a couple Ernie Ball um, basses. I have a, right now, the only thing I have is a Luke guitar. Oh, and it's it's just the most incredible guitar I've ever played. Yeah, that, well, there, here's a story. Uh, you know, I uh, Luke played on our Burn Season album, and uh, that's another example of a guy. You know that I've been I grew up listening to. I mean, this is the guy that not only you know it's funny. I was actually exposed to who Steve Lukather is personally by listening to Los Lobotomies on an independent radio station, which was his fusion band back in the 90s. So I didn't realize that's the same guy that was on all the Toto records and, you know, Michael Jackson's Thriller and, you know, a million other huge albums. But I knew this guy was just an awesome guitar player. And then later on in life, ending up in a studio you know, actually producing him, which was, you know, a laugh in itself, because here I am, you know, with my little record, telling Luke, try this, try that, why don't you play this part here, you know, <laughs> it's like, who am I to say, right, but anyway, going back to his guitars, uh, I remember walking into the Steakhouse Studios, you know, which we, we cut that track down in uh, LA, and that's where he does all his records, um, and there was just a wall of Luke guitars, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I've been playing a lot of, uh, the Petrucci's, but the Luke's are really, really great too. And, uh, I've also got a, a couple of, uh, well, I've got a silhouette and an axis. The axis is based on the old Van Halen back when he was originally doing a signature guitar with Ernie Ball. They make a lot of great guitars and they make them, you know, real guys sitting there really sanding the necks and, the attention to detail they put into them is amazing and it feels like a broken in guitar out of the box that's what i love about them so yeah good stuff good stuff i'm glad you're checking them out and uh, and digging them uh, what kind of uh, places do you go to to get inspiration do you, you you go out anywhere to get away from the studio to just kind of you know maybe be in a place that's put your mind mind somewhere else well, it's interesting you say that because as we speak, I'm sitting here looking at the ocean and I live in a really, really beautiful spot on the central coast of California with an ocean view. So 
I am very, very privileged. And I, I can work in my office here all day long and then go get on my mountain bike. And I do that every day that I'm home, just trying to stay in shape and get out and get some fresh air and, uh, and see where I live. Because I, I kind of live out in the middle of nowhere a little bit. I don't live uh, in a big city like we were saying. You know, I, I live on the outskirts of San Luis Obispo on the beach. So it's, it's, uh, I guess that's kind of in itself where I go is just being able to live in a good place where, uh, all the tourists come over from Fresno and Bakersfield on the weekends instead of having to be that guy, you know, (laughs) and, and playing music for a living, you know, uh, again, you can live anywhere you want. Certainly there's some compromises. I have a, a big studio and a small residence, (laughs) you know, but, I, I got everything I want, and uh, life is what you make it. So as far as having a place to kind of go and get my head clear, um, I live in that place. And it's, uh, it's real easy for me to do that because I live in a beautiful part of the, the world. So um, I'm really privileged, and I know that, and a lot of people aren't. So I'm uh, thankful every day. Uh, here's a question that we always like to ask on Music Life Radio, which is, what does music mean to you? Wow. Jeez, uh, I should have prepared for that one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a question that we, we ask everyone, and we always get a slew of different answers. Some people, they even refuse to answer it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. what I, you know, I, I don't know if uh, it'll come across, but to me, mu- music is the real magic in the world. Um, it's, it's one of those things that you can't see, but will instantly take you to another place. Uh, it can make you feel better, even if it brings you down. It just transports you, and to me, that's that's real magic, you know, being able to have some tangible thing out there in the universe that can take a room full of people and instantly put them in the same place or make everybody happy or make everybody feel something. Uh, it's an amazing thing, so I, I guess uh, that's what it means to me. You know, it's... Aside from the basic things that you, you need to live, it's probably the most important thing in my life. You know, it's one of the things that have allowed me to stay sane throughout uh, many, many things, and uh, it's, it's, it's magical. I don't know. Does that answer your question? <laughs> well, you know, it's a, a question. It's more for, you know, you to, you know, say what you feel, and thanks. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Travis. Is there anything else you'd like to impart to our listeners? You know, the shameless self-promotion of uh, check out TravisLarsonBand.com. Uh, it's Larson spelled with an O. And then uh, I just so people know, when we go on the road, I tend to post uh, a lot of Facebook video updates on the Travis Larson Band Facebook page. So you kind of get a little behind the scenes every day of where we're at and what we're doing. And that'll start up here soon. Um, and as far as uh, just the music listeners out there, thanks for supporting a show like this, and thank you for doing a show like this. It's uh, it's really great that people are trying to keep music alive uh, on a grassroots level, and that's important. I think it's important for real art to stay alive in the world and uh, not to let the, uh, the big corporations completely take it all over and squash it out so so thank you personally for doing this and uh and thank everybody out there for supporting uh, live music and uh hope to see everybody on the road i guess that's my parting my parting ways right there i'd like to thank my guest travis larson of the travis larson band 
For more information on them, please check out their website, travislarsonband.com. They're also on Facebook. We're going to leave you with one more track of theirs called Fuzzy. I'm Josh Ullman for Music Life Radio. Josh for bringing us that story. If you like what you hear on Music Life Radio, please go to iTunes and write a review. It helps pull the podcast up to the top of the list, and we'd appreciate it. 
Thanks again for checking out Music Live Radio, and we'll catch you next time.